Ladies and gentlemen, and any um, extraterrestrials who are in the audience, welcome to this very special uh, event uh, uh, presented to you on behalf of Mars Society Australia and the American Institute of Aeronautics and Astronautics. My name is John Clark. I am president of Mars Society Australia. And uh, these two organisations who are presenting tonight uh, MSA is an organisation of uh, people who are committed to the human future on Mars. And not only just to talk about it or to learn about it, but actually doing hands-off on stuff through expeditions, through education, through uh, developing uh, test equipment uh, towards that goal. AIAA is a, a long-standing institution that is a professional society for aerospace engineers, and I know there are many uh, in the audience who are members and they'll be very happy to acquire more. I'd like to welcome Dr. Uh, Robert Zubrin, who from Pioneer Astronautics. He has a very long CV. He has worked for Lockheed Martin and now runs his own company, Pioneer Astronautics. Uh, he has a background in aerospace engineering, nuclear engineering, uh, space propulsion. Uh, and he is also the person who created the first Mars Society, the Mars Society in the United States, from which other societies, uh, like-minded, uh, have started all around the world. Um, and he is here tonight to talk about the human mission to Mars within a decade. So please welcome Robert Zubrin. So thank you, John, for that kind introduction. And uh, thanks to uh, all of you for coming and uh, for your uh, interest in this subject. Um, uh, because uh, while there are many concerns that are uh, more at the front of the headlines today than humans to Mars, uh, I think that 500 years from now, looking back at this time, uh, this is what people are going to consider as important. Okay? They're not going to care about who came out on top in Iraq or who was in or who was out in different political squabbles. Um, what the people of the future, the people living in multi-planet spacefaring civilization that we hope to begin will think is important in this time is because uh, this is when people first set sail for other worlds. This is when we made that future possible. Now, I, I should comment, as you can probably uh, hear from my accent that I am not from Australia. I only just arrived here uh, a couple of days ago, so uh, I'm only beginning to learn Australian. And, um, and I only know a few expressions which I tend to uh, use in inappropriate ways. So I have to apologize for that. So anyway, let's get a wriggle on. And uh, start to um, look at the subject. Okay. Humans to Mars, within a decade, um, how can anyone propose such a thing? Um, those of you who have been following this subject have seen concepts like this thrown around. Uh, and, you know, this is one of NASA's current concepts for sending humans to Mars. Um, I call it uh, the Death Star. Um, it's uh, quite large. Uh, Mars is here for scale. Um, 
And uh, supposedly this monstrous uh, spaceship would take humans to Mars in 39 days. Actually, if you use realistic numbers for nuclear electric propulsion, which is what this is an example of, uh, given the amount of thrust it could generate and the, what the system would weigh, it would probably take five years to get to Mars, which compares unfavorably to the six months that can be done today using chemical propulsion. Um, this thing here um, is uh, just a way of, of postponing humans to Mars by saying we can't go to Mars until we're living in the science fiction future. Okay. Another uh, excuse for postponing humans to Mars is uh, the claim that, well, before we go to Mars, we um, have to go to the moon so we can practice Mars missions on the moon. Now, it is true you could practice Mars missions on the moon, uh, but you could also practice Mars missions in Antarctica or the Arctic or uh, to some degree of, of fidelity in any desert, such as here in Australia or in the American desert, um, at you know, one one-thousandth the cost and commencing the activity today. Uh, so yes, it does, it does make sense to practice Marshmans before you go, but you don't need to go to the moon to do that. Um, so what do you really need to do? In other words, if we really wanted to go to Mars and not think of excuses for not going to Mars, okay, if, if we wanted to cut right to the chase, um, what do we need? Now, that is a question that uh, I and, and some fellow engineers asked ourselves in uh, 1990 when we were working at the Martin Marietta Company, which subsequently became uh, Lockheed Martin. Um, the the, the uh, first President Bush had declared uh, he wanted to go back to the moon, on to Mars, this time to stay. It was great stuff. NASA went off and conducted a study on how such a mission might be done, and they came up with a plan to do it uh, 30 years later at a cost of $400 billion. Basically, what they had done was taken this presidential imperative and attempted to use it as a justification for funding any and all technical programs that were of interest to them. So they designed the most complex mission you could possibly do in order to make everyone's pet technology mission critical, uh, which is the exact opposite of the correct way to do engineering. Um, but, and therefore, the program was failing in Congress due to excessive cost and ridiculous schedule. And the, so we said, well, if you just wanted to do the mission and didn't want to use this program as a way to justify a vast assortment of uh, other programs, how would you do it? Well. And so we came up with a plan which we called Mars Direct. Um, and the name refers to two, two sense of directness. One, directness programmatically with the minimum number of intermediate steps and also directness in terms of the actual flight plan. Um, the, uh, now, so any uh, space initiative needs an appropriate booster and uh, so we designed a heavy lift booster, uh, which we call the Ares after the Greek name for Mars. Now, the Ares uh, was uh, basically a junkyard special. It was designed to create a heavy lift booster out of shuttle technology, um, which is in the junkyard today and should have been in 1990. 
Um, the, um, but what you have here is the shuttle external tank without the ogive, the pointy top. Uh, it's not needed in this case. A uh, couple of solid boosters that uh, are off the shelf. And uh, four shuttle main engines, which we offset in this odd kind of way uh, because we wanted to use this vehicle in parallel with the shuttle program and the shuttle and use the shuttle launch pads, which have their flame trenches positioned here. Okay. Now, so that's why they're offset. If you were to use this today, since the shuttle is no longer flying, you would just put the engines directly underneath and you'd slightly improve the performance. Um, but anyway, uh, so that was all straightforward. And then, in addition, it has an upper stage, uses hydrogen-oxygen propulsion with 250,000 pounds of thrust, which is the same thrust that was in the J2 engine that powered the upper stages of the Saturn V. Um, so that is uh, straightforward. And, uh, and then a nice fat fairing here, um, 10 meters in diameter or 33 feet if you work at the Martin Company. Um, but the, the uh, so it could hold big things. Now, launch vehicles are typically rated by what they can lift to low Earth orbit or LEO, L-E-O, low Earth orbit. And if you want to know, uh, this one could lift, if designed this way, could lift 120 uh, metric tons to, to low Earth orbit. Now, that's pretty good. Um, that compa the, compares to, say, the shuttle, which could do 20, or the Proton, which could do 20 or Ariane 5, which could do 20, or the Titan 4, which existed at that time, also could do 20. This was six times as powerful as that. Uh, on the other hand, uh, it wasn't really that remarkable because um, the Saturn V, which we used to go to the moon in the 1960s, could do 140. It's, it's a strange thing to think about that, you know, you think of the space program as, as being futuristic, cutting edge, space age, um, and yet, we in the space program today are using systems that are less potent than were used 40 years ago. Okay? We're, we're almost in the situation of like somebody living in Italy around the year 800 AD. That is after the fall of the Roman Empire, but the great ruins are still all around. And they're wandering around among all these aqueducts and temples and coliseums and things and, and looking at that and saying, we once built that? Nobody could have built that. Okay. They, that's impossible. Um, but we once, well, we once built things like this. And uh, it's entirely a doable thing. Now, this vehicle, because it has an upper stage can do something beyond send things to low Earth orbit. It can use the upper stage to throw payloads uh, directly into interplanetary space to planetary destinations. And that's how we want to do the mission. Just lift and throw and let it go. Use the, pay the upper stage of the booster to send the payload to the planet exactly the same way we sent uh, every real planetary mission we've done today, which have all, of course, been unmanned, uh, the various Mars probes and Voyager and so on. But also the Apollo mission to the moon was done that way as well. Okay, uh, No one's ever done a planetary mission by lifting things to Earth orbit, transferring it to the spaceport, waiting for you know the interplanetary cruiser to come back from Saturn, be refitted, pick up the payload. And, you know, no. If you can do the mission that way, just lift and throw, 
you've gone 90% of the way right there towards taking the Mars mission out of the science fiction future and putting in our world of real world engineering. But how could you do that? The, the Death Star that I showed you a couple of charts ago uh, weighed 1,000 tons. Okay? No one's ever built a booster that can lift 1,000 tons. Okay? Um, I mean, if you did, you know, you'd blow away Orlando when you took off, which would be bad for morale at the Cape. Um, okay, so what could you do? Well, conceivably, you could design the mission up. Uh, 1,000 divided by 120 is around 8. So you could divide the mission up into eight chunks and shoot them out to Mars in convoy, maybe rendezvous along the way or in Mars orbit or on the Martian surface or some combination of such maneuvers uh, and put the mission together that way. You could design a mission that way. And in fact, I know someone who once did design a mission that way and that's one reason why he's no longer designing missions because it's a really stupid way to do it. Because the, 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 if you have eight launches and they're all mission critical and one goes in the drink, you lose the whole mission. So that's not tenable. Okay. Now, a lot of people, including me, are willing to divide a mission up into two pieces and, and, and count on them both working. But dividing 1,000 tons by two would be 500. It'd still be much too much for a Saturn V class vehicle. So what else could you do? Um, well, you have to ask yourself, why is the Death Star so heavy? And, and various other variants of the giant interplanetary spaceship uh, so heavy. Well, if you look at such designs, what you tend to see is that the reason why they're so heavy, just in terms of looking at the mass, is that three quarters of the mass is the propellant required to come home. Okay, you're delivering to Mars the propellant to come home. Well, um, I mean, shouldn't you go to Mars with the propellant to come home? Um, well, is that how people explored the Earth? Um, I mean, in my own country, Lewis and Clark were the first people to cross the American continent on a, a mission of exploration. Did they bring with them all their food and air and water for themselves and their horses for that three-year mission? No. If they had done that, they would have needed a wagon train of supplies for every man and another wagon train for every horse and then another wagon train for each wagon driver and another wagon train for each wagon horse and then more wagon trains for all of those. And uh, the thing would have gone exponential. It would have exceeded the budget of Thomas Jefferson's America and, in fact, might have exceeded the mass of the earth. Um, no, they didn't do that. They hunted their way across. And to some extent, they got food and other resources by trading with Native Americans. But in either case, what they were doing was making use of the resources that were available in the environment they intended to operate in. So, you know, what then is the travel light and live off the land approach to Mars exploration? That's the question that we asked ourselves. So, here's the plan. Uh, yes, as you can see, it's secret, but uh, okay, there we go. Uh, the, all right, uh, this is what's known as a mission sequence chart. Okay, year one is the first year of active flight operations. Uh, you can fly to Mars, you can launch to Mars every 26 months, roughly every two years. So that, that's the repetition of launch windows. So in year beginning of the flight operations, we launch one of these boosters 
And then we use that upper stage to throw a 40-ton payload directly to Mars, which is, is what the ARIES booster could do. Um, and it flies out to Mars on what's known as a minimum energy trajectory. It takes about eight months to get there. And then this is an unmanned payload. It, it's also unwomaned, too. There's, there's actually no one in it. And, the, um, and when it gets close to Mars, it uses, uh, well, when it reaches Mars, it uses an aero shield <coughs> to slow itself down, to capture itself from an interplanetary trajectory into Mars orbit. And then after orbiting Mars a few times, you, you know, uh, check out the weather and so forth, make sure everything is, is appropriate for landing. And then you come back into the atmosphere deeper and you use the aero shell to plow yourselves down to subsonic speed. And then you pop a parachute and come down slow and put yourself soft <laughs> down on the Martian surface with rockets, just like we did with Viking in 1976, or in a somewhat different system, but uh, comparable in its uh, abilities, uh, the Curiosity in uh, 2012. So it's down on the Martian surface. Now, what is this thing that we have delivered to Mars? Okay. It is the Earth return vehicle or ERV. Okay, so uh, this is the vehicle that the crew is going to use when it's time to uh, chew off of Mars. Um, sorry. Um, anyway, uh, time to go back. Um, the, uh, so what it can, it's a little rocket ship. It's got a little cabin here, about five meters in diameter with tight quarters for a crew of four to do a six-month voyage from Mars back to Earth in the final phase of the mission. Uh, but there's no one in it now. Then it's got two uh, rocket uh, propellant stages here, um, which work on a methane-oxygen propellant combination, which, however, are unfueled. They have to be unfueled, or this thing would weigh four times as much as it does. It would be much too heavy for something, a Saturn V class launch vehicle to shoot off to Mars. However, in some of the lower stage tanks that are later going to contain high, uh, uh, methane, we have about six tons of liquid hydrogen, probably in uh, gelled form. And then slung below the vehicle, not shown in this diagram, we got a light truck, like a little pickup truck, it runs on methane and oxygen, and sitting in the back of that truck is a little nuclear reactor with a power of 100 kilowatts. So 100 kilowatts, like 130 horsepower, uh, same amount of power, the power is a medium-sized car. Um, so this is not a giant nuclear power plant that powers a city or even a, a ship. This is just a nice little putt-putt nuke sitting in the back of a truck. And what happens is, after you've landed on Mars, the truck is telerobotically driven a few hundred meters away from the landing site, unwinding a cable off the back of it as it goes. And then when you get a, 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 a modest distance away, the reactor is lowered off the truck and put on the ground, preferably in some little crater or ditch or even just on the reverse side of a hill, anything to put a nice-sized chunk of dirt between the reactor and the main landing area. Then what you do is you turn the reactor on. And this is what you do. I mentioned we brought some hydrogen from Earth. You run a pump. You suck in the Martian air, which is 95% carbon dioxide, CO2. The hydrogen can be reacted with CO2 to produce methane 
and water. This is a catalytic reactor uh, reaction that occurs uh, with, uh, uh, goes virtually to completion, the equilibrium constant driving it forward is like 10 to the seventh. Um, and it's exothermic, it requires no energy to go. Um, this is a gaslight era uh, chemistry, it's known the Sabatier reaction. Okay, so the methane that you produce, that's an excellent rocket fuel. You liquefy that and you store that in your tank. That's your fuel to come home. Then you take the water that has come out of it and you electrolyze it. Once again, 19th century chemistry. Split it into hydrogen and oxygen. The oxygen you store in your other tank, that is your oxidizer to burn the methane. And then to get additional oxygen, which is desirable to give you the right mixture ratio for uh, burning the methane to, to get optimum performance, you have a third reactor in which you just take CO2 and you split it into carbon monoxide and oxygen. The oxygen you keep, the carbon monoxide you can vent as waste. Uh, you can do that on Mars. There's no environmental protection agency there. The, um, so um, when you're all done, what you've managed to do is uh, take uh, six tons of hydrogen from Earth and turn it into 108 tons of methane oxygen by propellant on the surface of Mars. That's a leverage of 18 to 1. It's like a pioneer acquiring the useful mass of a bison for the transported mass of several bullets and cartridges. That's what makes the mission sing. Okay. Now, because we can make so much propellant, we actually make more than the Earth return vehicle needs. The Earth return vehicle, as it turns out, only needs 96 tons of propellant. What's the other 12 for? It's for operating ground vehicles using chemical engines. Uh, and why do you want to do that? Because chemical combustion engines have a much higher power to mass ratio than you can get with electric vehicles and batteries. And uh, that's why they're so much more popular here on Earth. And in a frontier environment like Mars, where you really do need the long range and the torque and the hauling capability, and in some instances the speed available from having chemical combustion engines, you really want to have a real car instead of a golf cart. Um, this is very valuable. So, but it would not be practical to do that if we had to bring the, the fuel for the cars from Earth. But if you can make it on Mars, then this is practical. And that is extremely important because what's the purpose of the mission? Exploration. What's the number one requirement for exploration? Mobility. Okay. So the, the, the point I'm making is the ability to make use of Martian resources is not merely, uh, merely, uh, not only to make the mission cheap and affordable, it also makes the mission effective, which is equally important because there's no point going to Mars unless you can do something effective once you get there. Okay. So. That, that's what this is about. Now, um, to some people that work in aerospace, um, this seems like a magic trick. But actually, uh, this is 19th century industrial chemistry. This is something that could have been done in Jules Verne's time. It is a far more simple thing to do technologically than, say, launch something to Earth orbit let alone launching something across interplanetary space. Uh, and to prove it, uh, well, here we built such a system at Martin, although there's nothing new here except, I guess, for the degree of automation that we use, which is modern. But uh, we were just proving to NASA that wheels roll. I mean, that's all there was to it. And, and this worked uh, quite well. Um, 
And what you're looking at here, by the way, is a system that is full scale, not for the humans to Mars mission, but for the Mars sample return mission. Um, that is this thing here, which involved, I don't know, about 40 kilograms of hardware in the course of a sample return mission could make uh, about 500 kilograms of propellant. So that if you wanted to return a sample of, of soil and rocks from Mars, you know, a scaled down version of the human mission, uh, this would have very high leverage in terms of delivering a modest amount of hardware to produce a rather large amount of propellant to enable a, a direct return from the Martian surface. Um, now, um, okay, it took eight months for this one to fly to Mars. It took 10 months for it to make the propellant. That's 18 months. There's 26 months in between launch windows from Earth to Mars. So long before the next launch window has opened up, we will know that we have a fully fueled Earth return vehicle sitting, waiting for us on the Martian surface. And that being the case, at the next launch window, year three, okay, we launch two more of these boosters. One shoots out another one of these Earth return vehicle fuel factory combinations. The other one shoots out a habitat with a crew of four astronauts in it. Now, because our return ride is waiting for us on the surface of Mars, we don't need to fly to Mars in a gigantic Death Star spaceship. We don't even need to fly to Mars in a comparatively modest Millennium Falcon. No, we can fly to Mars in a tuna can. And that is very fortunate, ladies and gentlemen, because we know how to uh, build uh, tuna cans and uh, they have been proven to be very effective in commerce. Now, this one is um, somewhat larger than your standard chicken of the sea model. Um, it is about eight meters in diameter, and uh, the useful part of it here is about five meters tall, so you've got two decks, each with about two and a half meters of, of headroom. Um, the upper deck is where the people really live. The lower deck is more of a cargo hold workshop kind of place. Uh, This is uh, one candidate layout for the upper deck of the HAB. Um, what you see here are little staterooms for four people ahead. Uh, there's a science area, the galley, wardroom area, exercise area, and then here is a, uh, in the center, is what's called a solar flare storm shelter. Now, this is, is worth talking about, because people talk about the, the radiation showstopper on the way to Mars. You have to deal with it. It's not a showstopper, but you have to deal with it. There's two kinds of radiation that can get you in interplanetary space. There's cosmic rays and there's solar flares. They are entirely different in their nature. Okay? The solar flares, as the name suggests, come from the sun. And they don't come all the time. They come in irregular bursts. You might get one big solar flare about once a year, but that's just probability. You could have two in the same month and then nothing for two years you generally will probably have more during periods of solar max than solar min, but once again, it could happen any time. Okay, now, and what happens with the solar flare is um, in a period of a few hours, uh, it could deliver a, a, a massive dose of radiation of, of 1,000 rems, 10 sieverts or more, uh, to an unshielded astronaut, which is enough to kill either immediately or after a fairly brief period of radiation sickness. That is the bad news. The good news is 
that the kind of radiation that solar flares are actually made of are, is protons with energies on the order of about a million electron volts. And that kind of stuff can be stopped by 12 centimeters of water or things that from the nuclear point of view are essentially the same thing as water, such as food, or things that water and food become as the mission uh, proceeds. And um, we, we have enough of that to pack it in uh, around the uh, central area here. And if solar flare happens, the alarm bell rings, everybody runs in here, and they're stuffed in there pretty tight for a few hours. But then the all clear rings, and they come out. And that's what you do. And you'll probably have to do that once. You might have to do it twice in the whole mission. It's not a big deal. Okay. Now, what about um, the other kind of radiation? It's cosmic rays. They don't come from the sun. In fact, nobody really knows where they do come from. They're particles that come zipping into our solar system from interstellar space with energies not of millions of volts each, but billions of volts each. It's actually somewhat of a mystery in astrophysics of how these things could be created in the first place. But there's no question that they do exist. And if they're coming in with a billion electron volts, you can't stop them with 10 or 12 centimeters of water. They'll go right through that. You'd need meters of water shielding to stop it. And uh, we don't have the mass on the ship to supply that amount of shielding. So you're going to take that dose. That's the bad news. The good news, however, is that the magnitude of that dose just isn't that big. Okay? It's, uh, and by the way, they don't come in a big rush once in a while. They come all the time. It's just a little constant pitter-patter of high-energy radiation. The, 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 uh, the dose isn't that big. It's around 60 rem or 0 0.6 sievert, if you're more familiar with those units, um, per year. Uh, and you're going to be in space for about a year on this mission. You're going to be six months out, six months back. You're going to be on the surface for a year and a half, but on the surface there's plenty of mass you can use for shielding. So the way you're going to get that dose is in transit. The, the, so what's 60 rem? What does that mean? 60 rem represents about a 1% risk to a 35-year-old woman that she would get a fatal cancer at some point later in her life, assuming no advance in medical technique over the present. Okay, if it was a 35-year-old male, it would take about 80 rem to represent the same level of risk. Men are slightly more resistant to radiation-induced cancer because they do not have the breast cancer risk. Okay, if you're Younger than this, the risk is greater. If you're older than this, the risk is less. Um, now, uh, but in simple terms, it's about a 1% risk. Now, that's not something that any health authority would recommend for the general public. But you have to put in context. Uh, if, I don't know the statistics here, but I imagine it's similar. Um, if you're an average American, you have a 20% chance you're, and you don't smoke, you have a 20% chance you're going to die of cancer. This would make it 21. Okay. If you're an average American smoker, it's 40. Okay. So, in fact, if we recruited the crew out of smokers and sent them to Mars without their tobacco, we would be reducing their chance of getting <laughs> cancer. Okay. So, one reason to send people to Mars might be for their health. Come on. 
Oh, yes. Okay, and by the way, because um, once again, this thing is, is constantly raised uh, as why we can't go to Mars because of the cosmic ray dose. Uh, we've already had people in space who have taken this kind of cosmic ray dose. There's about a half a dozen cosmonauts and a few astronauts that have taken cosmic ray doses due to extended uh, mission uh, uh, state time on the various space stations, Salyut, Mir, and the ISS, uh, that have given them cosmic ray doses co comparable or in some cases greater than they would have gotten going to Mars. And there are no radiological casualties among this group, not one. Okay. Nor would you expect there to be, because if you've got eight people and they've each gotten a 1% risk, chances are no one's got hit. Okay. Um, and, and there you have it. So, um, so the, the, this should not be uh, overdrawn. Now, there is uh, one effect of space travel which has produced noteworthy uh, deleterious health effects, and that is um, zero gravity. Okay. Uh, the extended exposure to zero gravity causes deterioration in muscle and bone because you don't get uh, the, the workout that even uh, a completely uh, non-athletic person gets just walking around uh, doing their daily routine on Earth where they're just walking around and their legs are constantly holding up, you know, 60 kilograms uh, and so forth. Um, so they deteriorate. Now, the way to deal with that, uh, you can deal with that with very strenuous exercises. Two-hour hard workout a day will preclude these symptoms, as Shannon Lucid showed during her stay on the mirror. Uh, but actually, uh, many astronauts, uh, after a while, they, they don't maintain the discipline to do that, and, and we do see the deterioration. However, the simpler approach is to have artificial gravity. Um, and the way you can create artificial gravity on this mission is, is simple. Here's the habitation spacecraft. Here's the upper stage of the Ares booster. This threw them to Mars, so it's gone to Mars too. Okay, now it's just a hulk now. It has no further mission uh, utility. However, we can still use it as a counterweight on the end of a tether. So this tether is about one and a half kilometers long and you spin this up at one art revolution per minute, you create Mars gravity in the hand. If you were to spin this at a little less than two revolutions per minute, you'd create Earth gravity in the hand. And by so doing, you prevent these uh, health effects. And if you do have a crew that is disciplined enough to do uh, a lot of exercises, they will get to Mars in even better condition. But the uh, but this will avoid the, the pronounced uh, uh, deconditioning associated with uh, zero gravity. And that's important because while you could survive the mission exposed to zero gravity, I mean, look, six months in space, six months is a standard uh, uh, tour on the International Space Station, and people come down with their muscles and bones deconditioned, but they certainly survive. However, these guys are going to Mars. They have a mission to do. And it's field exploration, wearing spacesuits. And uh, this is something that we have simulated on Earth in our, our Mars Desert Station and so forth. And uh, it's a physical activity. It's not an extreme activity. It's not like climbing Mount Everest, but it's like backpacking. And, and 
uh, heavy duty, and, and you need people that are in shape if they're going to do any substantial amount of it. And so this is uh, a requirement. And, and by the way, uh, you know, the, the, the photograph that I showed you early on in this presentation of a station in the Arctic, that was a real photograph. We have a, a Mars practice station in the Arctic. And in just a, you know, you know, one or two days of, 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 of hiking around in a spacesuit, you, you definitely get the idea that this is a physical activity. Uh, and then you wonder why we're devoting all of our space research to, uh, not space research, space medicine research to zero gravity health effects when it's clearly the wrong approach to doing the Mars mission. Uh, Yeah, this is Shannon Lucid after she came down from her tour on the mirror where she actually did do the exercises. And you can see this is the, the very day she landed and she's walking around. She walked off the shuttle and here she is, you know, shaking hands with Bill Clinton and she's still not sick. So, um, <laughs> you know, so it, it can be done. Um, Um, anyway, so, okay, they're flying out to Mars, they're on a six-month trajectory. You can get to Mars in six months using present-day chemical propulsion. In fact, the Mars Odyssey spacecraft launched in April of 2001, arrived in October. That actually did get to Mars in six months, uh, and it doesn't... Um, doesn't cost you a hell of a lot of extra fuel to get there in six months instead of eight. Okay. If you try going a lot faster than that with present-day propulsion, the, the, uh, the delta V, the amount of velocity uh, change that you have to impose on the spacecraft grows up, the propellant requirements go up exponentially, and uh, it doesn't pay. So the, the sweet spot in the curve is around six months. But actually, there's a reason why you want to go to Mars not in just around six months with people, but in exactly six months. And that is the following. That is the orbit that gets you to Mars in six months. If you chose not to stop at Mars, but fly past it, you'd fly out to about uh, the inner region of the main asteroid belt, about two astronomical units away from the sun. And then you'd loop back, and you would reach the orbit of the Earth exactly two years after you left which means the Earth would be there. If you went faster, you'd go out further and you'd get back in two years in a week or two years in a month, take your pick, whatever. Okay, the Earth would not be there. If you went a little slower, you'd get back, uh, you, you wouldn't go out quite as far, you'd get back in 1.9 years or something like that, the Earth wouldn't be there. So in other words, the free return orbit that if you want to, wanted to abort the mission, fly past Mars and get back to Earth, is the orbit that gets you to Mars in six months. So even if you had a superior propulsion system to chemical propulsion, like say nuclear thermal rockets, that could in fact, without too much extra propellant, get you to Mars in five months, you wouldn't want to do it. You want to get to Mars in six months. If you have a superior propulsion system, use that capability to increase the payload. But don't try to go faster, it doesn't pay. Because you'll lose the abort option by doing it. The, uh, so anyway, they're on a six-month orbit out to Mars. When they get close to Mars, 
They fire a pyrotechnic device that cuts the cable. The upper stage and tether go away into interplanetary space. They go and they aero capture into Mars orbit. And then after a couple of days of surveying the situation, they go and land at site number one where the fully fueled Earth return vehicle is waiting for them. Now, we've been on the ground at site number one for two years. We have thoroughly explored the area with little robotic rovers, so we know the terrain, taking photographs of everything. All this has been used to train the pilot. We got a radar beacon on the ground to draw them in, just like the one at the airport. Got an ace fly in this thing. They should, excuse me, uh, they should uh, be able to land right on the spot. But let's say they don't. Let's say there's a major um, error and they land 20, 30, 40 kilometers away from the designated landing site. That'd be very significant landing errors under such circumstances. Um, because, by the way, some of you may, know, may remember, others may have read, we actually landed an Apollo lunar lander within uh, 200 meters of a surveyor spacecraft that had been put on the moon a couple of years before. Um, and we have much better guidance systems today. Um, so you should be able to hit it. But let's say, once again, you don't. You're still okay because we have with us in the uh, lower deck of the HAB a pressurized ground roving vehicle that um, runs on a methane oxygen engine. And it has a one-way range of 1,000 kilometers. So it would really take massive piloting error to land outside of the reach of such a vehicle. But let's say that happens. Let's say instead of landing 50 kilometers, 300 kilometers, 500 kilometers away, they land over here on the wrong side of the planet. This would represent a serious problem with the pilot selection process. If, if that happened, okay, you can still save the mission because you've got the second Earth return vehicle following you to Mars. And if you land over here, this one, which is on the eight-month trajectory, uh, can be brought over to land near you wherever you did land and save the mission that way. Now, of course, in this instance, you would be counting on the chemical synthesis process to work in real time instead of having already been done before you went. But the... Uh, uh, the viability of the technology has been proven by the success of the first lander, and you do have a human crew on the scene to even adjust the equipment should it malfunction while they are there. Although, in this particular example, you probably would not want the pilot to participate in that activity. Okay. But still, you have three other crew members, uh, and one should be able to do it. Now, um, okay. So that, there's your third level backup. Now finally, a fourth level backup, if you can't land accurately, if you can't drive there, if you can't use the second Earth return vehicle, the fourth level backup is you got your whole crew landed on Mars where there's natural gravity, where there's substantial mass available for radiation protection, and you got enough food with you for three years. So you can just tough it out on the surface of Mars until the next launch window opens up and more supplies and another Earth return vehicle could be fired out to you at that time. So what you have is a four-layer defense in depth on the mission, and each layer involves actually carrying off the mission. You also have one aboard option, which is to do the Mars flyby and return to Earth two years after you left. Okay. Um, 
So that's what you have. But let's say the thing works as it should. You go ahead and you land at site number one. Earth return vehicle is there uh, just as it should be. Uh, it's healthy just as its uh, automated health monitoring has reported to you before you ever left. You don't need this other Earth return vehicle. What are you going to do with it? Well, you could land it somewhere else. Now, in principle, you could land it anywhere else. Um, boy, where are we now? Um, okay, wow. Uh, I prefer, however, to land it not right where I am, not uh, on the other side of the planet, but a few hundred kilometers away. Why? Because we do want to land at someplace new, because we want to explore someplace new. Okay. However, I would like to have it at least within one-way driving range of the base, so that if something should change, the crew has available to it another complete Earth return vehicle that could take them home. So the crew has two Earth return vehicles, either one of which could take them home. They also have three habitable uh, uh, um, cabins to live in, the main one in the HAB module and two smaller ones in the Earth return vehicles. So they're multiply backed up. Now, of course, we don't really want them to need to use this second Earth return vehicle. It's landing at landing site number two, where it will start making propellant to support the next human mission, which will fly out to it in year five, along with another Earth return vehicle, which is there back up, but which otherwise is used to open up landing site number three. So the idea here is every two years, you launch two boosters to Mars, one to open up a new site, one to exploit the previous site. Two boosters every two years is an average of one per year. If, you know, during the shuttle program when it was really humming along, we launched an average of six a year. Okay. Uh, so what we're talking about is using one-sixth of the capability of a heavy lift vehicle program to support this. That's clearly affordable, and it means that what you could do in parallel with this program is do other interesting things with this hardware, such as build and operate a lunar base, go to near-Earth asteroids, whatever you want to do. Okay. So, this is an actual photograph of the Mars base. So, what you see here is the Earth return vehicle. So, here's the cabin, uh, the two propulsion stages. Here's the little chemical plant built into the landing stage, which acts as the takeoff pad for the rest of it. Uh, here is the uh, reactor in the crater in the background, and here's the cable bringing the, the power in. Here's the habitation module. Upstairs is where they live. Downstairs is the storage area, a workshop, and the little garage for the little pressurized rover here. This is uh, some solar panels, which they deploy after they land. Gives them extra power, and in particular, backup power if they ever have to turn the reactor off. They also have backup power available by running the engine of the car or the light truck, which maybe is hard to see, but it's sitting in the shadow over here. And that's a backup vehicle for this one. This thing you see here, this is an inflatable greenhouse. This is an experiment. It's not a mission critical element. It's an ex experiment, a research project for learning how to grow crops on Mars in Martian soil, Martian water, Martian gravity, uh, Martian sunlight, et cetera, for the benefit of future missions and future uh, bases. Now, we're going to be on Mars for a year and a half. Why a year and a half? Okay, well, the, the most powerful answer is um, you, in a mission plan, a Mars mission plan, you basically have a choice 
of either being there for a year to a year and a half or being there 30 days or less. And if you're going to be spending a year in space, you might as well spend something like that on Mars. The, 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 uh, the, these are two different mission plans known as the opposition mission plan or the conjunction plan. Um, the names are actually interestingly uh, astrological in origin, but I, I won't go into that. But the, 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 but anyway, the opposition mission plan involves spending two years in space and 30 days on Mars for a, a total mission duration of two years, one month. The conjunction plan involves spending six months each way, that is a year in space and a year and a half on Mars for an average duration of two and a half years. So a uh, number of bureaucrats at NASA actually prefer the opposition plan because it has less time away from Earth. Okay, uh, I don't think that makes any sense. If your figure of merit for a Mars mission is minimum time away from Earth, then you just shouldn't leave. Okay, the, 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 my figure of merit for a Mars mission is person days on Mars divided by tons in low Earth orbit. That is, person days on Mars is the exploration power of the mission in rough terms. Tons in low Earth orbit is the cost. The opposition mission also is, is heavier because it involves more propulsive maneuvers. Um, but the real problem is, is not that it's about half again as massive. The real problem is that it has uh, less than a tenth of the time at Mars. Uh, <coughs> spends 5% of the mission time at Mars. The other one spends 60% of the mission time at Mars. And uh, so therefore, in order to have the, the you know, given the launch windows and the choices, spending the majority of the mission time on Mars as opposed to transit uh, makes much more sense. Uh, and therefore, you're spending a year and a half on Mars. Well, what are you going to do in a year and a half on Mars? You're going to explore, uh, which, by the way, takes time. Um, now, you're going to explore Mars for all kinds of things. There's all kinds of things people want to know about Mars, geology, magnetic field, this, that, the other thing. Uh, and all this stuff is really great for professors who want to get tenure by getting papers published. But there are, however, two fundamental questions that make Mars of interest not just to academics seeking tenure through publication, but to humanity at large. And the first of these questions revolve around the issues of was there or is there life on Mars? Okay. So, Okay, this is an actual photograph of Mars, and this was taken by Viking in 1976. And what you can see here are water erosion features on Mars, lots of them. Okay, they're all over the place. Uh, there are no canals on Mars, never were. That was a 19th century fantasy. However, there really are dry riverbeds on Mars and dry lakes and ponds and even a dried up northern ocean on Mars. And the evidence from these sorts of features is that Mars had liquid water on it during its early period for about a billion years, which is five times as long as it took life to appear on Earth after there was liquid water here. Okay. Earliest known life on Earth is actually discovered in Australia, uh, stromatolite fossils that date to 3.8 billion years ago. Um, the, the, these are... are macroscopic fossils created by colonies of bacteria uh, that they've been found here. Uh, 
3.8 billion years old, the Earth only had liquid water going back 4 billion years. So within 200 million years, there was uh, life on Earth after there could be. Mars had water for a billion years, five times that long. Okay. So if the theory is correct that life is a natural development from chemistry through progressive complexification and so forth, then uh, life should have appeared on Mars, even if it subsequently went extinct after conditions on the surface deteriorated. And if we can go to Mars and go around and do some serious rock hounding, we might be able to find those fossils. Okay? Um, and by the way, finding these fossils in Australia, it, you know, it wasn't, it, I mean, it was done fairly recently, I think in the 1990s it was done, and people had been living here for 200 years before that, uh, before they found it. So it's not, you're not going to find this by landing a couple of little rovers and say, ah, there it is. Um, but the, the, do some serious rock hunting, you find these fossils, um, you will have proven that the development of life from chemistry is a general phenomenon in the universe. And since we now know that planets are a general phenomenon in the universe, we now know from the Kepler Space Telescope that uh, probably planets around stars are more the rule than the exception. Probably most stars, the majority of stars, have planets. And the uh, and since every star has a habitable zone, that is a, 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 a zone near or far from it, depending upon the brightness of the star, whether you have the right kind of temperatures for liquid water and thus life, uh, if, it, if life can develop wherever there are planets that have reasonable temperatures and so forth, it means life's everywhere. It means when you look up into the night sky at night, you're seeing a million inhabited worlds. Okay? And, and since we know that the entire history of life on Earth is one of development, from simpler forms to more complex forms, uh, progressively manifesting greater abilities for activity and intelligence and, and ever more rapid evolution, okay? um, then if light's everywhere, it means intelligent life is almost everywhere. It means we're not alone. Okay? On the other hand, if we go to Mars and we find, yeah, look, here's some ancient lakes and rivers and ponds and oceans and all this kind of stuff, and sedimentary rocks, but no traces of any fossils of any kind whatsoever. That would say something different. That would say that the processes leading to the development of life from chemistry involve elements of freak chance. You know, some people think you, know, you got to have DNA and RNA, which are these weird structures with these amino acids, and the chance of that happening by itself is one in ten to the hundred and twenty-fourth power, or something. And therefore, it you know it. It's just a total freak that we're here. It's a miracle. Um, the rest of the universe is uninhabited, which would be um, an incredible waste of space. But the uh, but there it is. Now the um, um, uh, but this is what what you're determining. This is something that thinking men and women have wondered about for literally thousands of years. Uh, now, furthermore, if astronauts to Mars and set up drilling rigs and drill down a kilometer or so to the water table because there is a liquid water table on Mars. Okay? This was theorized in the 90s by Michael Carr and others, but we now know it's true because the Mars Global Surveyor spacecraft, which arrived at Mars in 1997 and conked out around 2007, 
took two pictures of the side of a crater, one in 2000 and the other in 2006, and a water erosion feature appeared on the side of that crater between those two photographs. So that is while Mars Global Surveyor was operating in the first part of the last decade, water burst out the side of a crater, created a little water erosion feature, and then it stopped, which means there's a reservoir of liquid water, and there's no reason whatsoever to believe that that is unique to that particular location. It, 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 it's there. And uh, so if we could drill down to the water table on Mars and bring up some of that water, if there's life on Mars today, that's where it is. It's not at the surface. Surface is, is uninhabitable for microbes. Okay, it's, it, 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 there's no liquid water. It's bathed in ultraviolet light. Uh, the temperatures are below freezing. Uh, you know, it, it can't live there. But it could live in the groundwater, just as there's plenty of life in the groundwater of the Earth. You know, the original inhabitants of the Earth, the first anaerobic bacteria, could not survive in the presence of oxygen. So when photosynthetic plants starting polluting the Earth's atmosphere with oxygen, the surface of the Earth became uninhabitable for the first generation. So what they do? They went underground into the groundwater. They're still there, and they're waiting. The, um, <laughs> okay, the, uh, the, and in fact, they outnumber us by a lot. Okay, most of the life on Earth is underground. Actually, most of the Earth is underground, but the, um, anyway, they're down there, okay? They've been down there, you know, they've seen them come and go. They've seen the dinosaurs come and go. They've seen the mastodons come and go, you know, the Roman Empire, the Wehrmacht, you know, they, it's all come and go. They're there, okay, and they'll be there after we're gone. But anyway, they're there, and, uh, if the life forms on, that were originally on the Martian surface had to go somewhere when the surface became uninhabitable, they could go into the groundwater just as our uh, friends did here. And, the, um, and they could still be there. Now, we go there, we drill, we bring up some of that water, we culture it, we see what's in it, and if, if there is something in it, and we can examine its biochemical structure. And now it, things get really interesting because do they have the same biochemical structure as Earth life? See, all Earth life is the same at the biochemical level. You all use the same amino acids. You all use RNA and DNA, the same way of encoding genetic information. In other words, we're all alike, despite superficial differences with mushrooms and oak trees and crocodiles. We're all pretty much the same, okay? And the... Uh, but, and there's a priori arguments as to why life should involve water and carbon chemistry and so on. But there's no a priori argument as to why life should necessarily use RNA and DNA and the same uh, specific limited set of amino acids. This is a very peculiar language that it's using. So is, now all Earth life is that, but is all life that? Okay. In other words, are we what life is, or are we just one peculiar example drawn from a much vaster tapestry of possibilities? Okay. That's what we could find out by looking at Martian life. Okay. And uh, do they use a different language or a different method of communicating uh, genetic information or its equivalent? Uh, 
are they the same or not? So that's something we could also find out. And you're not going to find this out by sending robots to Mars. Okay? You're going to have to send humans to set up drilling rigs and then do this kind of analysis in a lab on Mars and, and so on. Now, so after a year and a half of exploring on the surface for these kinds of questions, they get in the Earth return vehicle, start it up, and nick out. <laughs> what um, Fly back to Earth. They leave behind uh, on Mars the uh, reactor, the habitat, greenhouse, the vehicles, the solar panels. Is that bad, leaving all this very expensive aerospace, space-qualified equipment on Earth, uh, uh, on Mars. Uh, shouldn't they bring it back so it can be reused? No, you want to leave it on Mars so it can be reused. Okay, you don't want to bring the stuff back to Earth. We have a lot of stuff here already. The, the, the idea of, of Mars missions is to bring as much stuff to Mars with you as you can and come back with as little as you can so that everything that you've delivered there can continue to be used as you develop uh, human capabilities on the planet. So. Here is what things might look like uh, after um, eight missions have happened. Uh, these circles, this is a map of Mars. Uh, Texas is here for scale. Uh, you can see Mars is, in fact, much bigger than Texas. Um, and uh, these circles, the, the landings are at the centers of these circles. Uh, these circles have uh, a radius of um, 500 uh, kilometers uh, because, I, as I told you, the one-way driving range of the vehicle is 1,000 kilometers, so therefore it has a sortie range of 500 kilometers. Okay. Um, okay. Um, and uh, you could explore the interior of one of these circles in the course of a mission. Uh, and the centers are separated by 800 kilometers, so that if you're in an uninteresting place like this, you could drive over here and continue exploring if you found that that was the case, or here, or here. The, um, um, so what you're doing is opening up contiguous uh, exploitable territory, explore, explorable territory on a rather large scale. Now, um, but after a number of these missions have occurred, and I don't know whether the number is eight or four or six or 10, but some number like this, you're going to know the answer to the question. You're going to know whether there was ever life on Mars, or if there is now, and what its characteristic forms were or are. And you'll have the basic story. There'll always be more to be learned, of course. But still, you'll, you'll know the basic answer. Or if it's a negative answer, you'll have a reasonable degree of confidence that, in fact, there isn't life to be found on Mars. Uh, and then the key question of Mars is going to transit. Uh, remember I said there was uh, two fundamental sets of questions. And the bigger question is not, in fact, in my view, the more important question is not was there or is there life on Mars. The question is, will there be life on Mars? Because, um, look, the fundamental thing to know about Mars is this. Is Mars 
is not just an object of scientific inquiry. It is a world. It is a planet with a surface area equal to all the continents of the Earth put together that has on it all the resources needed to support uh, life and therefore technological civilization. And if we can uh, learn to make use of Martian resources, then Mars becomes a place that we can settle. And therefore, it becomes a place where we, where we can make Mars habitable. Okay, that's what we can do. Now, now, what do I mean by make Mars habitable? Okay, do I mean terraform the planet? Like in Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, where they take this barren planet and they turn it into this wonderful place covered with forests and meadows and, you know, yes. Um, um, that, that's what I mean. I think people will do that with Mars someday. Uh, but that's not what we can do, we who are alive uh, today. Uh, that's beyond our time. Nevertheless, we can make Mars habitable by transforming it in a different sense, not so much physically as intellectually. Because what determines whether a place is habitable or not is only partially an objective function of the place itself. It's also a function of you, of what you have in your head. Okay? The, whether you have the craft to live there. Two people can be stranded in a wilderness. One could starve to death in three weeks. Another could live there indefinitely in relative comfort. Why? Because one understands the craft of living there and making use of the resources that are there, and the other does not. Okay? Similarly, if we can go to Mars and set up a base where we learn how to use Martian resources, go beyond the Mars direct plan, uh, which involves making use of, of, of the Martian atmosphere to make fuel and oxygen, but learn how to use all the resources of the planet. Learn how to extract water from the soil, or better yet, geothermally heated water from the deep subsurface, which not only give you water, give you power. Learn how to make bricks, ceramics, glasses, metals, tubes, wires, habitation structures, okay, plastics. You can do that, then you create a situation where humans can become self-sufficient on Mars, and therefore where new, a new branch of human civilization can develop on Mars which in the fullness of time will grow in size, in technological proficiency and industrial capability to the point where it can actually address the question of the physical transformation of the planet itself in the interest of life. Okay? And, and, and I think we will do that someday because we're life, this is what life does. It takes barren places and transforms them into places that are friendly for the development and propagation of life. That is why life has been a success on Earth, and that is why life is going to be a success in the cosmos. Okay? Uh, I don't believe that the human race is the enemy of life. I believe the human race is the vanguard of life. Okay? Um, we are the part of the community of life on Earth that has the capability of making it possible to leave this one planet and expand the biosphere to other worlds, diversify, spread, multiply throughout the cosmos. So we're not just going to bring life to Mars, we're going to bring Mars to life. I'll leave it there. Thank you. I'd be delighted to take some questions. Yes. Um, for questions, uh, my uh, wonderful wife here has a microphone, so please raise your hand. Uh, I'll indicate the person who will take the question, and could you wait till the microphone gets here? So, uh, first question, please. Uh, yes, this gentleman here. We need very long arms. 
can you please talk a little bit about cost projections and sort of do that in comparison to current NASA budget? Sure. Um, Okay, by the way, I just mentioned you could use the same hardware to build the lunar base. Uh, and if you did develop this hardware for both Mars and lunar purposes, okay, in other words, you can see you can use a subset of the hardware to do the lunar base and then you use the full set to do the Mars missions. I believe that this hardware set could be developed for around $20 billion. Okay. And then once you had this hardware set, each Mars mission would cost around $2 billion and each lunar mission would cost around one. And if you envision a program, say, I mean, take 20 years, first 10 years developing the hardware, second 10 years fly five missions to Mars and 10 to the moon, okay? That adds up to uh, $40 billion. $40 billion over 20 years would be $2 billion a year, which is about 13% uh, of NASA's budget. Um, I think that given that we have a space agency that we fund at 18 billion a year, taking 13% of its budget to actually explore space uh, is justified. Okay, another question. Uh, down the front here and then up the back. Yeah. When you developed this was Clinton days and I, the big game changer for space travel now is probably 3D printing. You know, we've got the capability of 3D printing habitats, houses and the like here on Earth. There's no reason why we can't do the same thing on the Moon and Mars. Um, would you rejig this sort of plan these days if you were starting from scratch to incorporate robotic um, production of the concrete that can then be um, put into a robot? Okay, you, you 3D printing has some real utility, but it has been overhyped. Um, the the for 3D printing to work, you have to have a pure substance, whether it's steel, aluminum, plastic, whatever you're working in, in order to produce the a, a product of a uh, of a sort. Um, now, this has great utility for a Mars mission. Uh, or and even more for a Mars base, because for instance, if you have uh, you know an endless variety of, of, of steel fittings that you need to repair things, and you don't want to bring you know quarter-inch bolts and three-eighths-inch bolts and half-inch bolts and you know and and one uh, you know several of every kind and every size of thing that you need, if you have a 3D printer, you can make these things as required. So th that is of definite utility. It, it, it's like having a little machine shop with a, a great versatility to support you so you don't have to bring as many spare parts. You can bring the material, then you have a printer. But to actually print out an entire habitat like this, I, I do not think is, is realistic. And uh, I, um, I, there's complex systems involved. And you'd have to ship the mass to Mars anyway to do it, so why not ship that mass in the form of the completely built and, and instrumented uh, and wired up habitat? Um, so uh, 3D printing is of use to the mission without question, but not 
in quite as expansive a sense as, as, as you just suggested. It's not thinking on the basis of digging up dirt and, and um, refining it into a, um, into a concrete. Well, Perhaps. even concrete, uh, you know, Portland cement, I mean, it, it involves a certain amount of refinement. You're not just taking bare regular. I mean, okay, there, there is, I mean, if we look at the earliest human structures of the uh, mud brick houses and so forth, I suppose you could do that, but the, the, that's not that great a structural material. Uh, so, I mean, maybe someday, but where 3D printing in, is now, it plays into the mission as a way of, of uh, creating an, uh, an arsenal of spare parts as required without having to bring the whole arsenal. Right, one, one more question. I think this, this gentleman here. So I was just wondering, um, for this kind of first um, Mars mission that you've been talking about today, do you envision this as being um, a unilateral or a multilateral mission? Right? Are we talking about um, are we talking about this primarily being a NASA initiative or in collaboration with Ruth Cosmos or like what do you? I suppose, what do you think the best way forward is in terms of mustering uh, the actual will to kind of see this mission done? Well, I'd like to see Australia just do it. Um, <laughs> the, um, okay, so I don't have to wait for NASA. But the, uh, I, I'm, I'm totally cool with it. The, 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 no, I'm, I'm pretty agnostic on this question. Okay. Uh, I uh, would be fine if, if you know, uh, you know, if you had a uh, very nationalist American leadership that wants to do this to show that America's got the right stuff still, fine, I'm cool with that. If you have an internationalist uh, leader gets up and says, look, let's use this to pull the world together, um, get all the countries involved, I'm fine with that too. Um, the, the, uh, I mean, the thing that, that future generations are going to remember from this uh, is that it happened uh, and not the particular peculiar uh, uh, political tricks that were done to justify it. Just as, I mean, the fact that Columbus justified his mission by offering a spice route to the Indies it doesn't matter much today. Okay. The, 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 now, with respect to that, I mean, you know, there's a lot of discussion of how we might make this happen. Uh, the, uh, uh, you know, of course, the Apollo was facilitated by the Cold War. Um, Carl Sagan advocated uh, a Humans to Mars program in the 80s as a suggestion for uh, trying to end the Cold War by doing it together with the Russians. Okay? Uh, as things were deteriorating in the 2013 period, uh, I put this forward as a joint proposal for joint mission with the Russians to try to prevent the uh, deterioration and, 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 and pull Russia away from the direction it was moving. Um, that was not, of course, picked up, and, uh, and I don't know if it would have been successful, but nevertheless, that was the justification that I offered. Um, the, um, we're going back to a situation where this may be justifiable in Cold War terms. Uh, who knows? Uh, I, but you know, here's the thing. When Neil Armstrong landed on the moon, 
Now, I don't know whether he came up with that line, great step, small step for man, great leap for mankind. I don't know whether he came up himself or whether some you know, advertising executive thought of that and, or the guy in the NASA PR department or whatever. I, I have no idea. But nevertheless, it really did capture something because, all right, the Apollo program was launched, at least in the view of the political class, for the purpose of uh, ensuring the victory of the Western Alliance over the Soviet Alliance in the Cold War uh, by waging the ideological war, showing that we represented the way to the future. Okay? Uh, and it actually did accomplish something in that direction. But nevertheless, I don't, look, Soviet Union no longer exists. Okay, 500 years from now, only history buffs will remember what it was. Okay, uh, so that the real significance, uh, assuming we do continue humanity's expansion to space, then Neil Armstrong's first step on the moon rep will represent a milestone in something important rather than just a, a, a one-off stunt. Okay, and, and it will be remembered not for what it did for the U.S., versus the Soviet Union in the Cold War, it will be remembered for what it did in terms of opening up the human prospect. Okay? And that's ultimately where it's going to count. Um, and so similarly, you know, uh, you know, and that's why I'm agnostic on, on how we justify it, because uh, it, ultimately this will justify itself. 